This morning I'm going to read from Matthew 10. We're going to start in verse 35. For I have for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Would you guys pray with me real quick? Father, I, got, uh, I thank you for this opportunity to, to study your word. Father, I pray that any distractions we have, Lord, anything that wants to take that, that number one place, God, we'd put it aside, Father. Father, I pray that despite us, we would focus on, on you, Father. Um, Father, I pray for all the foreign conflict that's going on, and I just, I just pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, that we can worship you, Lord, in peace. We can worship you freely, Father. Lord, I pray you would settle our heart, hearts this morning. Father, I pray you would teach us what it means to, to accept you and that you came and you were, you were set apart, Father. So, Father, I pray we would take that example and set that example for others, Father. And I just thank you for this, this opportunity to be here together, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. You know, as Daniel was reading those verses, man, counting the cost of following Jesus, right? What it means to truly love Jesus more than we love anything else, right? And, and this word this week, as I was reading through a passage this week, as we're in Matthew chapter 9 and, and sort of like diving into those things, was this word contrast, right? In our world today, there is a contrast between um, good and evil and the different things that are happening around our world that cause us sometimes to reflect. This word contrast is the idea of the striking differences between something or someone, right? Like in this case, you would, you would see the, all this blue and boom, all of a sudden something comes out that's unexpected or something that is a clashing against the, the times and the, and the view and the look of things that are going on. And so today as we look at Jesus and, and his healing, as he discusses fasting, as he starts talking about these things, he's going to get pushback. He's going to see people around him begin to reject him, to call him names, to say, no, no, this, what you're doing is wrong. And people are going to push back against Jesus. And we're going to see how does Jesus handle this situation. It made me think this week about um, kind of our world and things were going on. And back in Isaiah uh, chapter 5, right, we see this sort of warning from Isaiah about the people and what the world is like for them. And it has a lot of kind of echoes to the world that we live in today. Um, it says this in chapter 5, verse 20. It says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And so we're going to talk today about what it means for some people to call evil good and good evil and what it looks like when Jesus is doing good and yet they call the very things that he does evil and they begin to reject him because of these things. So we pick up 
in Matthew chapter 9. We just saw last week, Jesus is calling Matthew, the tax collector, hey, come and follow me, right? And Matthew follows him. They go and they eat dinner at Matthew's house, and the Pharisees, they freak out because they're like, how can your rabbi eat with sinners and tax collectors is scandalous. What is he doing over there, right? And so we pick up right after because that's not the only complaint that the people have against what Jesus is doing, right? Look what it says in chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So here's what's happening, right? There are different opportunities and different times that the Jewish people would fast. There were six called fasts for the festivals or the convocations that had been given in the time of Moses, right? In the book of Exodus, remember the Passover, the Day of Atonement, all these sort of different things in the book of Leviticus that were called the people of God. They called them to fast. There were two major fasts, which meant from sundown that would be 6 p.m. for them of one day all the way till the sunset of the next day, a 24-hour fast at major holidays, sort of like at Yom Kippur, which would have been at the Day of Atonement. There was a calling for a fast. There were other times where um, these other four minor times were called to fast in different ways according to these laws. But then the, the Pharisees, on top of the law from the Old Testament, added a new practice. They were fasting two days a week. They were fasting um, from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Mondays and on Thursdays. It was, a, it was for them an idea of how they could be more devoted to God. Now, fasting is an awesome thing to do. It's a great thing to do, but too many times um, the Pharisees were adding new rules onto God's command, right? And so maybe start thinking this week, what is the point of fasting? Like, like what is the point? Because I don't know about you, but there are food places everywhere. Like, have you seen in front of Costco? Like, I remember when there wasn't a Costco. Now, now there's like, I can't even decide where to eat. There's so many places there. And a gas station, right, with food inside of it. There's food everywhere. When you fast, food smells so good. It just does, right? And fasting, what it does is it creates in us a desire that we have to press down in order to choose Jesus. But why? Right? The purpose of fasting is to connect with God and to hear his voice more clearly. Right? That's the point of fasting. We want to connect with God on a unique and in a fresh and a new way, denying ourselves, making room for God to speak to us. That every time we get hungry, instead of eating, we decide to pray, right? We see this practice throughout the Old Testament. Look at um, Psalm 69, verse 10, right? We see David as he's getting ready to, he, the people around him are, are just in chaos around him. And then he's like, save me, O God, in verse 1. But in verse 10, he says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. That when David decided to fast in order to humble his soul, that's what fasting does. It takes us out of the picture. It's not what I desire, God. It's what you desire. It's, a, it's an act of humility, helping our soul to fall before the altar of Christ. Right? Or um, in, in other places, right, we see God giving us this example of fasting. In Joel chapter 2, we see another example of this with God. God calling the people to fast. It says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. That fasting and weeping and mourning, it helps us return to God. It helps us return to him because oftentimes we get distracted, don't we? 
We get distracted by the things that are going on around. Ooh, shiny. And we just kind of go and we do our thing. And, and everywhere, without even knowing, we're, we drift away from the Lord. And yet he says, rend your hearts, not your garments. And it was a habit for the Jewish people that when they were in distress, they would like rip their cloak and, and cry out to the Lord and put ashes upon their heads. But I don't want you to rip your clothes. I want you to rip your heart. I want your heart to be broken for the things that break my heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Doesn't that sound like somebody you want to be with? Someone who's full of steadfast love, who's slow to anger, who's gracious and merciful. Fasting helps us return to knowing God in a unique and intimate way. And so they ask him, why do your disciples not fast? And here's Jesus' answer to them. He says, how can or can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Woo. Here's what he's saying. What is the point of fasting? To connect with God and to hear his voice more clearly. Listen, I'm here. Come follow me. There's a time for fasting where you're not going to hear my voice. You're not going to see me walking upon this earth. God in the flesh, there's going to be a time for that. And that's when they will fast. But for right now, the whole point of fasting is so you can hear me. You can know me. You can experience me. And he gives an interesting picture, doesn't he? He says, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with him. And it says that King Jesus views them. He is the bridegroom. And his people, Israel, these disciples, they are the bride. And we have this interesting dynamic of King Jesus being like a bridegroom to Israel. And this is something that the Messiah was going to fulfill for them. This is something that the Jewish people were looking forward to as someone that would love them in a way that would make a covenant with them and come back and rescue them. In fact, we see it in Isaiah chapter 62. All right, If we go back to Isaiah, in Isaiah 62, we see sort of this picture that Isaiah is painting of how God was going to come and treat them. It says this in verse, 62, verse 1 of chapter 62. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. And you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as the young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That Israel has a special place in God's heart. And that's that what he's pointing out to these Pharisees, to these disciples of John the Baptist who are questioning him on why they're not fasting. He says, the, the people, they have a special place for me. And it makes me think about what's going on in Israel right now. Right? And the things that are going on, the chaos that's breaking out there. Does God still have his eye upon Israel? Does Israel still have a special place in God's heart? And the answer is yes. And this is why we pray for the people of Israel. This is why we pray for those that have had such evil um, put upon them, 
right? And it scares me sometimes in our world today that people will look at some of the activities that's happened there and call evil good, right? I don't know about you. I want to pray that evil leaves, that there is no evil in our world, that only we see the glory of God taking place. So how do we pray for Israel? We pray that the name of Jesus will become greater in Israel, that these, these people that have rejected Christ as the Messiah, the same people that you know, crucify him will now see and find hope in Jesus. We pray for the families of those, those who have lost loved ones. We pray for the innocent people trapped in the middle of the conflict that is there. We want to pray for those people that God will, through this process, somehow get glory. And through the process that the innocent people will be spared from the, the atrocities that are happening all around them. Can we take just a moment to pray for Israel? Uh, Lord, we just come before you. Lord, you, you've said in your word that you are like a bridegroom to the people of Israel, oh Lord. I pray that you will protect them, that you will draw them to yourself, Lord, that you will see your glory be made um, known in Israel. Lord, I pray for those that are innocent, trapped in the midst of these conflicts and war. Lord, I pray for your protection over them, that, Lord, you will spare them. But, Lord, I do pray that we will be able to take um, your word and apply it to the things that are happening around the world. Lord, help us have compassion just as you had compassion. Lord, give us the strength to love others well. And, Lord, I pray that you will bring somehow through the midst of this uh, the destruction of evil and peace in that region, Lord. But we lift all of it up to you. Pray for your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. But what happened with Israel, the bridegroom of Christ is that they were continually disobedient. When you read the Old Testament, you see um, Israel continually chasing after other gods and continually chasing after the things of the people that are around them. In fact, we see in Judges chapter 2, verse 3, that when, when Joshua is getting ready to go into the promised land, right, he, he, they, they don't take care of the business that God gives to them. And God tells them this, that now I will say they will not be driven out. These are the nations that are around them. And they will become like thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. See, these wars that are in Israel are not new news. This is something that's been happening for millennia. Right? In fact, when you begin to look at who the people groups are that are in these regions, they have been at war since Israel had become a nation. Because when you look at the Gaza Strip and you look at the area that is around there, it's a very interesting place. In fact, let's look at Psalm 83 real quick. Just so we get the biblical perspective on what is happening in Israel even today. This is Asaph giving a, a talk at the time of David and giving this psalm. It says, O God, do not be silent. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the, let the name of Israel be remembered no more. This is written 2,900 years ago. And it's something that we hear even today. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also join them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. 
And in the midst of this list of nations that were going to rise up against Israel is the place of the Philistines, Philistia. This is the area of Gaza. In fact, you can look at it in Joshua chapter 13. It gives a list of the Philistine cities, and one of them listed in there is Gaza. It's this area that these Philistines had begun to um, inhabit, this nomadic group of sort of Greek people that came over, and they were continuing to war against Israel. And that area of Tyre is the area of Lebanon today. The city of Tyre and Sidon, if you read it in Scripture, those two areas have constantly been battling against God's people in Israel. So what is happening in the world today is nothing new. It's just we get to see it in live action as it goes forth. Because again, Israel, the people of God being warred against by the people that are around it, how do we respond? Well, we're going to respond like Jesus responds. Because when we begin to look at Jesus' response to those that are pressing against him, those that are pushing against him, um, it's a beautiful thing. Because here's what's happening. Jesus is not meeting their mold of what it looks like to be the Messiah. Because the Jewish people, they had this picture of what this bridegroom was going to look like. This is what the Messiah is going to look like. He's going to conquer the nations. He's going to set us free. We're going to be set free from Rome. We're going to rule forever war. Yet... Christ came as a suffering servant, the one who conquered sin and death, the one who conquered the spiritual realm to give us a future in him. You see, when we try to make Jesus fit into our moral and our social norms, we just stir up chaos. We stir up destruction. But yet Jesus is not the one who needs to change. We are the ones who need to change. We are the ones who need to refine the way that we see Christ. In fact, look what he gives an answer in verse 16 to them. He says this, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved, that we are supposed to be the ones who conform to Christ, not making Christ conform to the picture that we have of the Messiah. You know, when I was a coach, I had an opportunity to go to the University of Texas and meet with the coaches there, and and we got to go into this room, and this was their recruiting room, right? And in this room, they had these kind of cut out mannequin sort of pictures of this is what the quarterback at the University of Texas should look like between 6'2 and 6'4, he had 220 to 240 pounds, and it had a speed for him, it had how, how far he should throw it. Then you go to the next one. Here's the, the, the specifications for a running back. And they had this sort of picture of who they wanted to be their quarterback. And yet They missed out on some of the best quarterbacks in Texas because they had a mold. For example, anybody heard of RG3 before? Robert Griffin III? You got to be kind of a football nerd maybe, right? But Robert Griffin III, an amazing athlete. I got to see him run hurdles, just an incredible, but he was 6'1". He wanted to go to the University of Texas with all of his heart. He'd always dreamed of going there, but he didn't meet the threshold. So he ended up going to Baylor where he won the Heisman Trophy and went to the NFL. You ever, anybody heard of Johnny Manziel? Amazing football player, terrible human being, okay? <laughs> terrible human, right? But an amazing football player, right? But he's only six foot tall. I saw Johnny Manziel in person, my last football game ever, and he destroyed us. 
destroyed, amazing, but he didn't meet the mold. So he went to play for the Aggies, and they, you know, did their thing, right? I already hear the whoops around, right? But um, we, we see because they had a mold, they missed out on Andrew Luck because he was six foot five. They missed out on these, these amazing players because they wanted them to fit a mold instead of the other way around. Are we willing to let ourselves be molded and changed into the likeness of Christ? Or are we inviting Christ to come into our, our life? Lord, just come into the life that we already live. Just be another person to help me along this way. That's going to cause destruction. That's what it says, right? You put new wine in old wineskins, it's going to burst, right? When it begins to ferment, right? It begins to, to expand its brittle and it falls apart, right? Anybody remember trampolines? Do you also have trampolines? That's still a thing, right? All right, awesome. I, we went through four trampolines, all right, because apparently weight limit. And I love trampolines, okay? And we put a basketball goal on the side of my. Anybody been on the trampoline when it bounced and a spring flew off? Like across the yard, all right? All right, in there. Did you, did you get off then? You're like, nah, we got some more springs, right? And you just keep going, right? And, and you see it, and your, your trampoline is decaying slowly, but you just keep jumping until that moment where you hit the ground. Boom, right? That, that's what happens. It would have been much better. Just take the time. Go get the spring. Put it back on. And yet, we just don't. We invite Jesus to come into our old life and try to keep living the same way we used to live instead of becoming a new creation, moldable by him. Or maybe this picture helps you. Anybody remember Play-Doh? Anybody remember this set? Remember that where you had like the little barber chair set, right? And you put the little guy or girl on there and you like crank the thing and then like Play-Doh would come out out those little holes and make hair for them, all right? And you would take the little scissors and try to cut them, which didn't work well, right? And then you take the little mold. Anybody remember that? That was so fun, right? Doing that, my kids never play with it, but I did, right? All this day they walk off and I'm still playing, you know, making my stuff in there, right? But we kind of... The Play-Doh is moldable, right? The pressure of it changes the shape of it, right? We are like Play-Doh in the hands of God. If he wants to make us a snake, if that's your skill level, okay, I'm a snake, right? If he wants to make you into something else, see, that's the thing. We are the clay, he's the potter. What right does the clay have to say, you didn't make me right? See, we are a new creation God. So we have to be willing to let God mold us, change us to be more like Christ, not the other way around. These Pharisees, they're not about it. Like, Jesus, he's like partying with sinners. He's supposed to be fasting like us. And yet Jesus says, I came for the sick. I came for the hurting. I'm with you right now. Why do I need to fast? And then he says this um, next, because next he's going to give Three sort of examples of healing that show his authority over all of mankind. In fact, we've been on this journey of these sets of three that have been happening in this rhythm, which is Matthew. In fact, if we turn back a couple pages, you remember where we ended with the Sermon on the Mount, right? The very last part of the Sermon on the Mount, um, the people's reaction to his sermon in chapter 7 Verse 20, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So what he's going to do in these next three sets of three is give us three sets of how Jesus has authority over these things. The first thing he has authority over is sin or over diseases and sicknesses. That's the first set of three. You remember he talked to the leper. He touched him and said, 
be healed, right? And then he had the centurion who came and asked that he would help, help with his servant. And don't you just say the word and he'll be healed. And boom, he was healed, right? And then we had Peter's mother-in-law who was healed. And at the end of that sort of section of three, it said, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That Jesus has authority over sicknesses and illnesses. But he didn't stop there. Because then in the set number two, he has authority over all of creation. Right? Because remember, they were in the boat. Jesus was asleep. What happened? The storm came up and he's like, hush, be still. The physical realm, Jesus has authority over that. Later on, he's going to walk on water like I can do what I want to do. I have authority of these things. Then when they got to the other side, they saw the demoniacs coming out. Legion, right? And he has power over the spiritual realm. So not only the physical realm, but the spiritual realm. And not only that, but he has the power to forgive sin. Remember the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. So that you will know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins. Get up and walk. Boom. God's power on display. Jesus has authority over all of creation, and he also has authority over all of mankind. That's what he's going to teach us today. And when people press back against him, they're pressing back against the very words of God. So the Pharisees who called him out for eating with sinners are going to call him out here in a little bit. He has authority over them. Right? The disciples of John the Baptist who are kind of questioning, why are you not fasting like the rest of us, even over the rulers he has authority? Look what happens in this next story. Um, the ruler of the synagogue comes to him. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Here's the ruler of the synagogue. We know his name from Mark chapter 5 to be Jairus. Right? He's a ruler of the synagogue where Jesus would go in and teach. And yet the very Pharisees that would go to the synagogue were the ones who were rejecting him. Yet not this ruler. And he said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Picture the scene. Don't just read it, right? Picture the scene, right? Here comes Jairus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, right? The, the lead spiritual person in all of Capernaum runs up to Jesus and falls on his face before him, begging for his daughter's life to be restored. And Jesus is walking with him through the crowd. Are you got the picture? Okay. And behold, a woman who had a had suffered from a, from a discharge of blood for 12 years, came up behind him touched and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Here comes a desperate woman fighting through the crowd. She's unclean. According to the law, just like the leper who runs up to Jesus, right? she's supposed to be yelling unclean, yet she fights through the crowd with just the hope of like just touching the hem of his garment. If I can just touch him, I'll be healed. And she fights through the crowd and she touches him and he turns and he points her out, which what this unclean person is in the midst of everyone else, yet Jesus turns and look, isn't it beautiful how he responds to her? Take heart, daughter. Oh, rejected one, Un 12 years you've been dealing with the issue. You spent all of your money dealing with this issue. Take heart, daughter. Be well. Be clean. Be restored. Have new life in me. 
Now, isn't that interesting? Because where is he going right now? To a daughter who's dead. And here he's giving life back to this woman as well. And he's about to give life back to this beautiful daughter as well. And when he came to the ruler's house and he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, right? They had professional mourners whose job was when somebody died, they would come and they would mourn in the house. They had these professional people that would come there. Um, And he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Do you see the contrast? We have desperate people falling on their face before Jesus. Lord, save my daughter. Lord, save me. And here the professional mourners are, and they laugh. They doubt. And what happens? And Jesus put the crowd out. And he went in, and he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. They laughed. They doubted. And guess what? They missed seeing the glory of God. They missed seeing Jesus do a miracle. And isn't it interesting how Matthew presents this? Does it sound like it was difficult? Does it sound like he had to do CPR on her for a long time? Is that what it sounds like? Jesus just walks in and he's like, hey, get up, walk. And she gets up. He has the power over death. Do you believe that? Do you have faith in that? Because, listen, look what happens next because it gets a little interesting, right? And as Jesus, verse 27, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out loud, have mercy on us, son of David. This term, son of David, right? This was the Messiah, the king. Why would they call him son of David? Because David's line, right, in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, it said that your throne will be established forever. The throne of David was where the Messiah was going to come through. So when they say son of David, they're calling him the king. King Jesus, Messiah, chosen one, promised one, have mercy on us. And when he had entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Woo! Now we say we have faith. We say we trust God in the midst of our hard times and our troubled and, our, and the things that are going on. What if Jesus said, I'm going to answer your prayers based upon your faith in me. I'm going to answer your prayers based on whether you really believe I can do it or not. Do you really want my answer? And here he is with the blind men. Can you imagine trying to follow Jesus as a blind person? There's, there's just a ruckus. There's people everywhere, and you're just trying to follow the crowd fight through you, hopefully have some friends that are going to get you there. And he says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. And they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. (laughs) Right? He's like, don't go tell anyone what happened, right? Why? Why would Jesus say that to someone? Because he said it to the leper, remember? It's like, hey, go Show yourself before the priest. Don't let other people know what happened. Why would he do that? Well, look back at Mark chapter 1, verse 45. It's describing this scene that was around Jesus. Can you picture what that scene would be like? What was it like to walk with Jesus, right? It says he went, he went out and began to talk freely about it, right? It's talking about this, this healing that happened. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But he had to be out in desolate places 
and people were coming to him from every quarter. That everywhere Jesus walked, it was like a rock star walking in the room. Everyone would be, can you imagine it? Your daughter is sick, and here is Jesus in Kyle. What would you do to get them there? What would you do to get your wife there who's hurting and broken? What would you do for that? Anything. You'd walk through whatever it took in order to get to Jesus. So there's this crowd of people around. Imagine, imagine this, right? Think about church life. What if someone famous were to walk in the door? How would you react? I mean, we're, we're, in, we're in Austin area, right? So what if Joe Rogan came walking in the back and came and sat down by you? Are you like, hey, Joe, and just keep on worshiping? How many people would be like slipping their phone out right in the middle of the worship song, right? Like, I praise you, Jesus, click, right? You're like, I mean, well, what happened? We're, we're, here comes Elon Musk walking in, right? You're like, oh, what's up, Elon? Thanks for coming to worship Jesus today. Just like he's one of us, a normal person. Or would you be like, can you sign my Bible? I mean, what? How do you react with those people? Are they just people to you? Because we know the king. We know the king. It's, it's, it's really easy to not get starstruck when you know Jesus, right? Just like Joe Rogan probably can't just go downtown to the store because people will mob him. Taylor Swift, come in, walking down, you know, Main Street. Jesus, the greatest of rock stars. Everywhere he went, people were coming to him and they're hindering even some of the work that he was trying to do. That's why he's like, hey, don't tell anyone. I got work to do. But yet they're ripping the roof off, putting people in there. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be around Jesus, who late at night would have to go off into desolate places to spend time with his father? He had to find the time in order to be in communion with his father. Look what it says in verse 32. It says, as they were going on their way, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. All right, so here comes a man who's mute, right? He can't ask Jesus for healing, and yet Jesus sets him free, right? Casts out the demon so this man can now speak. And the people marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Ooh, look at the contrast, right? One, praise the Lord. Look at the amazing things he's doing. The other one, he's not of God. Reject him. And we'll talk more about what this, he cast out demons by the prince of demons means here in a little bit. When we get to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk more about that. But notice the contrast. Both of them are looking at this scenario. A man being set free from a demon so he can talk. Is that good? Would you say that's good, someone being healed? Yes. But they call it evil. We, we, we have a, a mixed up world sometimes that wants to call evil good and good evil and, and make the light into the darkness, the hope of Jesus in the darkness instead of making it the light. And then he says this, verse 35, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So we kind of get a look into the mission of the king. Here's Jesus' mission that we see here. Right? He goes into a village teaching in their synagogue. So if we want to be on mission for Christ, we need to be going around teaching the word of God to the people that are around us. That's part of what the king's mission is. He went to the synagogues, opened the scrolls, and he taught them from the word. Right? Secondly, it says, and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. 
That everywhere we go, we're supposed to be the light, preaching the gospel message, telling other people about this amazing Jesus. And thirdly, healing their diseases. He was meeting their physical needs. He was healing. He was setting people free. He was giving them new life. And that's the calling of us as the church, teaching the word of God, sharing the love of God and the love of Christ with others, meeting the needs of those that are around us. But yet, Jesus did these things. And he got hatred. He got pushback, didn't he? He's doing this by the power of the devil, is what they said. How do you handle criticism? Jesus is getting criticism. People are speaking against him. How do you handle it? Let me give you an example. Look what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 about how we should be handling controversy and, and handling people when they, when they try to jab you and prod against you whenever you, you put something, put yourself out there and they begin to tear you down. Look what it says. Remind them of these things. It's Paul teaching Timothy, his disciple. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Did he know about Facebook back in this time? Uh, Maybe, maybe they did. Maybe that, right? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word. And if they hate you because you rightly handle this book, okay. Guilty as charged. Do you believe this? Yes, I do, because it says in this verse in God's word. Well, you're this, you're that. Okay, I, this is what I read in the scripture. If I'm going to get hated for something, let, it be, let me be hated for rightly handling the word of truth, right? But it says this, notice, hope you hear me, avoid irreverent babble, for it'll lead people into more and more ungodliness. The more and more we, we, we fight and struggle, we can have different opinions about things, that's okay. But let's discuss them. Let's look at the Word of God. What is the Word of God teaching these things? When we get into these back and forth, it does no one any good. This makes everybody else feel rejected. Instead, let's rightly handle the Word of truth, doing the things that Jesus did. And look what he says next. He, he encourages us here. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If you saw a bunch of sheep, would you round them up? And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I'm telling you right now, the the harvest is plentiful. Look around. Do you realize in the year 2000, do you know what the population of Kyle was? Anyone want to take a guess? 5,000 people. In 20, 2000, the year 2000, 5,000 people. 2023, 56,500 people live in Kyle. This is in Hayes County, not Buda. This is in Kyle. And next year, they're predicting 2,000 more people will move here. In one year, we're expecting a population growth of 2,000 people. The harvest is plentiful. Are you willing to go to work with me? I'm willing to go to work being the hands and the feet of Jesus to the people that are all around this area that need the hope of Jesus. So, so what does that mean practically? Like what does that mean for us? Let me give you a couple of things of what I think it means practically for us to, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Here's the first thing. Wherever you live, work, and play, live as a light of Jesus. Wherever you go, 
the restaurant after this. Maybe you get the worst service you've ever gotten. How are you going to react like Jesus? How are you going to react in that situation? Right, when you get out of here, one of our church members might cut you off. They might have that sticker on the back, Fellowship Church. You're like, Jesus loves you, right? How are you going to react to that scenario and that situation? All right? Are you going to just, you, no, I won't say it. All right. Are you going to love them in the midst of that? So what does that mean? Live with peace and authority that is rare. Now listen, it's a rare thing to be able to have peace and authority. Listen, a lot of people have authority where they just tell you things to do, then you kind of look like a jerk, right? Then the other people, they have peace like, oh, just kind of floating along on a tube, right? But then they don't have any impact. They, almost, they become complacent with the way that they live. Have both. Be able to have authority to not always speak when spoken to. Have authority to not always have to react. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And yet live at peace, but also with authority at the same time. Here's the second thing. Love and sacrifice for others. If you want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, love and sacrifice. First for those of the brotherhood, those of the church. How are you loving the people that are around you? But also for those outside of it. How are you giving of yourself to love your neighbors and love the people that are around you? That makes a difference. It makes a difference how you love people in the world. Here's the next thing. Engage in life and life, life on life relationships for spiritual growth in Christ. Get involved in life on life with one another. Here's a practical way. Here's a good way to practice. Today, welcome the people that are around you. Let me, get, let me ask you a question. How many of you like to sit in the same seats every Sunday? Some of y'all over here, okay, on this side. I know that for sure, right? You're like, visitors sit there, you're like, um, excuse me. We got another stop off for you, all right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. How well do you know the, if you sit in the same seat, okay, awesome. How well do you know the people around you? Is that your community of people? How well do you meet, the pe- meet and greet the people that come every Sunday to 10 o'clock service? How are you loving them? Encourage them, getting in their life, praying for them, all right? That's a simple, easy way. But also, uh, get uncomfortable and get plugged into a small group. You want to know the life of our church? It happens in a small group. Get into that life on life. Sit in a small group across from someone else and hear them share their life story. Woo. Man, you'll get to know people really. Man, if you knew the stories of the people in this room, you would be blown away. You'd be like, how is that person still following Jesus after all the stuff that's happened in their life? Man, how do they have such joy with all the things that are going on in their life? And you get to see that what's really happening is that the joy of Jesus shines through even in the darkness. Light overcomes darkness. Right? So we need to live like that in the world. So that's kind of our challenge, okay? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way that you handled opposition. The Lord, that you, you heard those that speak against you, Lord, and you spoke truth to them. Why, why fast when you are with us? So, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to connect to you in unique ways, Lord. I pray that you help us to resist the urge to even defend ourselves, Lord, and, and let you be our defender. And, Lord, let the Holy Spirit be the one to work in people's hearts and minds. And so, Lord, I pray for um, this time, Lord, as we get ready to reflect for a few minutes, Lord, that you will bring to our mind people that we need to love well, that we need to get into life-on-life relationship with today. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So we want to give you a chance to kind of participate in worship today and just have a time of sort of reflection and prayer. Perhaps God brings someone to mind. 
um, a friend of yours that you need to share the love of Christ with. Maybe God puts a, an issue on your heart that you want prayer about. Maybe for, you want to trust Christ for the very first time today. We'd love for you to come down. Jayden and I will be up front. We'd love to pray with you. And just if you're seeking the healing of the Lord in some way, we'd love to be a part of that. Um, and there's a part of the song where it kind of begins to, to ramp up, right? We can really begin to worship. It's called, oh, come to the altar, right? And we would love for you to join us at that point in just worshiping the Lord and giving him thanks for who he is. And so this altar is open for us to be able to pray for one another. You don't have to come up here. Maybe you want to pray with those people in, in, that are around you that, you that you know so well because you sit in the same spot. Maybe you want to pray with those people and just uh, love on them and encourage them today. And this is a time of reflection for us just to remember who Christ is. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. your regrets and mistakes come today there's no reason to wait Jesus is calling leave your sorrows and trade them for joys from the ashes a new life is born Jesus is calling Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ
Christ is risen Oh, what a Savior Oh, what a Church, thank you so much for hanging out with the family this morning. We're so glad you came. If you're visiting with us uh, one time, first time, thank you. Visiting with us second time, that's a fan. Thank you so much. You came a second time. So, um, just want to remind you the tables, the the, the Mary Martha Mini Conference. Uh, Sandra and the team have been working hard on that, and the, um, the sign up for night in Bethlehem. That's out there. Uh, but I want to leave you with this verse, Church Colossians three twenty three. Whatever you do, whatever you do. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Church, we love you so much. You're dismissed.